This is episode number 244, Dean Karnaz's Discipline, Commitment, and Being Present. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I think because we ultimately prove to ourselves we're, we're better than we thought we were and we can go further than we thought we could. I think endurance sports are very quantifiable. So, you know, you may think it's impossible to run a marathon. And I tell people that's why you need to go run a marathon. And when you finish the marathon, you prove to yourself that nothing's impossible. And I think that's the power in what we're doing. So grateful that you are here and that you are part of this awesome community. I love podcasting. I love all of my listeners and I love my guests. Well, my brain is well fed right now. I have been in a health coaching program through Vanderbilt's Medical Center since the summer of 2020. The program was actually recommended to me by one of my podcast guests who is a PhD at Vanderbilt. And it's all about how to help people find more intrinsic motivation so that they can change their behavior and get the results that they want in their life. And I'm so excited about this because this type of health coaching has a national board certification behind it and tons of research. So it's not just slapping a label on saying I'm a health coach. It has a lot of school and a lot of practice and a board certification behind it. So I'm really excited to continue down this path the coursework part is almost over. That'll be over in May. And then I start a practicum section of this program before I can sit for the boards next year. So it's basically a two-year goal to get this certification and a lot of hours behind it. I've really been enjoying it. I've been enjoying the process of learning how to coach. It's really different than how we normally communicate because we really want to help people build their intrinsic motivation. It's made me an even better listener. The podcast has made me a good listener and the health coaching has been another level onto that. And I've also gotten to learn about myself because part of the program means that we have to be coached by one of our colleagues. And there's a lot of things that come out whenever you're talking out loud through ideas. I've been including a lot of these ideas in my weekly newsletter that comes out every Monday, and that is at sanyaluni.com slash newsletter. The majority of the newsletter is an article that I have researched and crafted every week about mindset, motivation, and habits to help you be better, which is what this podcast is about, how to be better every day. And I'm really passionate about that. I love the opportunity to get to have a longer form. It's not really a discussion, but a longer form opportunity to write about a topic to reach you guys and help you as best as I can and get your feedback. I love it when people hit the reply button and tell me how the newsletter sat with them and it's just so cool to be a part of your journey. If you want to get in on this newsletter and see what you're missing, go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, and I will see you on Monday. So let's get into today's guest, Dean Karnazes. And this guy is amazing. He is known as the ultramarathon man, and he is one extraordinary human. If you've ever followed ultra running, no doubt you've heard of some of his adventures. He's been named one of the top 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. He has taken on many unthinkable feats, like running 50 marathons in all 50 U.S. states in 50 consecutive days and finishing on his last day the New York City Marathon, where, get this, he ran a sub three-hour marathon for his 50th marathon in a row. And as somebody who someday is training to run a sub three hour marathon without running any marathons the day before or 49 days before, that's really impressive. He has run 350 continuous miles, so 350 miles in a row, foregoing sleep for three nights, so not sleeping, running 350 miles straight. He's run across the Sahara Desert in 120 degree temperatures. And as an aside, I've raced my bike in the Sahara Desert and running in the Sahara Desert, you don't get the evaporative cooling benefits running that you do biking. So it would be hard to imagine that. And he's also run a marathon to the South Pole in negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. His long list of competitive achievements includes winning the world's toughest foot race, the Badwater Ultramarathon, running 135 miles nonstop across Death Valley during the middle of summer. And this is a really prestigious event. So to win this event is a huge deal. He has raced and competed on all seven continents of the planet twice. And despite his many accomplishments, awards, and distinctions, he remains most proud of his ongoing contributions of time 
and funding to programs aimed at getting children and youth outdoors and active. He's raised millions of dollars for charity and was awarded the most prestigious community leadership award by the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sports. Dean is a humble, down-to-earth guy with amazing stories. Seriously, listen to him on the many podcasts he has been on, and you'll hear something different every time, like eating with a fork and knife off a plate running down the road, fans pulling up next to him while he was running at 2 a.m. in the middle of nowhere on a back road to autograph a book, and so many more stories. We didn't really get into specific stories because he's told so many of them on other podcasts. I wanted to get into the man behind the running shoes, the man behind doing all of these things and get to know Dean on a much deeper level. Dean is a New York Times bestselling author and his fifth book, A Runner's High, just hit the stands. So not only is he an incredible endurance athlete, he's also an endurance writer. I read this book and it's beautifully written, entertaining, and a tale of how to manage expectations, goal setting as you age, and his chronicle of going back and running the Western states many, many, many years later. And Dean is 58 years old. And I asked him what he has coming up as soon as this pandemic blows over. And he casually says, yeah, I'm just going to go run across Australia. So those of you saying that you're too old to get out and run or too old to get on a mountain bike, this guy, I mean, 58 is not that ancient. It's not that old. But I hear people much, much younger than that using their age as an excuse, and age is not an excuse. So look at Dean, do what Dean does. He's awesome, and we're all so much more capable than we ever thought. In this episode, you'll hear themes of discipline, commitment, being present, and vulnerability weaved into the thread of this podcast. We talked about a number of topics. We talked about Dean's writing process, and he was excited to talk about this because he said he rarely has actually talked about it because people don't ask him about it putting himself out there, especially as an introvert. We talked about masculinity and vulnerability, aging and expectations as an athlete, overthinking in a race versus being present. We talked about how he talks to kids about eating and exercise, why endurance sports build our identity, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're interested in yourself and you're interested in performance, you should check out our podcast sponsor, Inside Tracker. They're giving 25% off to our listeners, which is a, a really great discount. You just go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia. And Inside Tracker is this company that gives you the power back over your health. All you have to do is go to one of 2,000 plus partnering labs in the USA, or they can come to your house and you get your blood drawn. And from that blood, they measure over 30 biomarkers, things like cortisol, inflammation, magnesium, vitamin D, creatinine, so many different things that show an optimized range of how you can get better at lots of different things. They have the option to choose what your goal is. So your goal could be performance, your goal could be sleep, your goal could be gut health. And they offer advice as to what healthy foods and lifestyle choices you could do to increase or improve those biomarkers. Having a sense of agency with your health and knowing what's going on in your body is such a powerful feeling. So go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off and get rolling with improving your health and wellness. All right, so let's get into the show. Dean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. The ultra marathon man and an incredible and beautiful writer. Oh, that's I, I appreciate that second thought really a lot because um, rarely does anyone talk about my writing. They always talk about my running. <laughs> well, I've read a, a couple of your books and your, your most recent book, Runner's High. And especially with that one, I was just taken aback by how amazing the writing was. Like it's written almost like it's a novel, but it's a memoir. And just the words that you use and your way of describing things really tugs at heartstrings. Well, I wrote a lot of it as I was running. So I think that people say, you know, your, your authentic voice really comes through. Um, that's because <laughs> I'm actually running. And, you know, any runner can relate to this. We have some of our clearest thoughts while we're running. And I thought it was a waste because I, I, I'd have these thoughts and, and I'd get back to my house and they'd disappear. So I started dictating into my phone as a way to capture kind of my thoughts while I was running. And, and then I just type up the notes. Yeah, it's a great method. As you 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 talked to me a couple of years ago, because I've been starting and stopping with writing a book. And I have my best ideas when I'm out on my bike. And I try and just dictate the ideas to Siri. And then I get home and look at my notes. And I get confused. Like, what was that about? 
<laughs> yeah, I think writing's a little different than running, but um, you know, it's it's wherever you have your creative thoughts, try to capture them. And you know, we're going to talk about you know running and the man behind the runner in a little bit, but we should talk about writing because everybody's interested in writing, and especially now, you know, there's there's multiple ways to do it. What made you write your first book? You know, Sonia, I just wanted to write a book. It was just a goal of mine. You know, kind of like I wanted to go skydiving and <laughs> I wanted to swim with sharks, you know, those, that kind of thing. I wanted, to, I wanted to eventually do the run with bulls. And so I, I wrote a book and I thought, okay, if five of my buddies, you know, read this book, I'll be lucky. And it became a, a New York Times bestseller. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, I'm not, I'm not a writer. I'm not trained as a writer. And I'm just talking about running. You know, wh- where's the majesty there? You know, what's drawing people to this? And it was just some of the pros that we writers can express so clearly that just puts people in your shoes. And I think that my first book was kind of an accident. And, and then I really kind of fell in love with the craft. And I've learned that, you know, running is tough, but writing, <laughs> it's a whole nother level of pain. Yeah. And you say that running is worthwhile in itself. And it sounds like the same rings true for you with book writing. Like you mentioned, you wrote that first book not because you set out to become a New York Times bestseller, but just for the sake of writing the book in itself. Well, yeah, I did. I, I mean, I, I like the creative process, but I also wanted to see that I had the discipline to see something through to, you know, to the finish line. And, you know, writing a book is like a prolonged ultra marathon. <laughs> you know, you work so hard to get to the finish line. And at some point it just becomes dogged persistence where you're just unwilling to give up. And it just kind of feels gratifying when you turn that manuscript in. It's also quite harrowing because, you know, uh, you really expose yourself when you write in a lot of ways. You know, you tell your story, but also you open yourself up to critics. And it's, you know, people can be harsh. Thankfully, I haven't had a lot of heart. You know, my books have been very well received. But, you know, when, when, you, when you write something and you publish it, you're always kind of, you have this heightened sense of, you know, what, what's going to happen? Are people going to, you know, what, what perspective are they going to walk away with? Is it going to be a positive or a negative sort of thing? So, you're, you know, you're really putting yourself out there. And I've been very fortunate in that, again, that my books have always been reviewed very well. But I've seen other books where I've, I've, I know how hard it is for a writer. And when their books are criticized, I really feel for them because it, it's such an arduous, painful thing to do. And, and one criticism can just bring you to your knees. Yeah, there's some friends of mine and they said at one point they have a book out and they said on Amazon, I was reading that, you know, we have mostly good reviews, but we had a one star review and they said something that really resonated with me. They said, why are you catering to people leaving the one star reviews? And it's so easy to listen to (laughs) even our own one star reviews of ourselves. Yeah, well, I think, you know, to your point, we're, we're kind of our own harshest critic. I mean, I think ultimately the, you know, the toughest critic you face is the person you see in the mirror every morning. And that's kind of how, where I've come to with my book writing. I just put my, you know, my best foot forward and I put my heart and my soul into it. And I do the very best job I can. I think that's my commitment to the reader is just to do my best. And I don't compromise. I'm unwilling to compromise because I know now this is my fifth book that these books live on in perpetuity. <laughs> you know, you're not going to outlive your book, especially nowadays with the way things are digitized. So you know, you, you've really got to you've really got to come out with a great product and not compromise any words, any sentences, which takes a lot of discipline in a, you know, in a, in a manuscript that can be 75,000 words. Yeah, especially for somebody that doesn't like to sit still. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me. <laughs> well, it, it was easier before the pandemic because, you know, when you're on a plane, you're kind of, you know, you're trapped. So you're captive. And that's when I would do most of my, um, you know, my, my writing. I'd just put in an earbud and, you know, listen to my, to my dictations and then type it all up. But now that um, we're not traveling the way we used to, it is, it's tougher for sure. <laughs> How do you go about outlining these books? You know, this last book to me is, it just kind of came to me. You know, my books are memoirs and people say, well, what's the difference between a memoir and a, and a biography or an autobiography? You know, a biography or an autobiography is a, a pretty much a, a tale of someone's life, where a memoir is a, a segment of someone's life. So all of my books have been about specific episodes in my life. And this one, 
it covers a lot of territory, but when you really distill it down, it's basically a two month period of my life, <laughs> you know, and there's permutations and, you know, there, there's, I get sidetracked a lot as every runner does with their thoughts, but it just kind of came to me like now is the time to write about, you know, not, not staying the course. Now is the time to write a book about, you know, how do you stay true to the person you are and how do you, you know, maintain your endurance as an athlete as you grow older? And kind of, you know, facing the reality of what it means to be slower <laughs> and, you know, try to re retain your grace through that and continue to, you know, throw yourself at these challenges that are pretty insane for most people. Yeah, I want to put a pin in that and come back to that, because I think that, you know, expectations, especially as you get older and being able to choose, you know, worthy pursuits is something really important. But I wanted to come back to talking about discipline. You use the word discipline a lot when talking about writing your book. And discipline is also something you need to have as a runner, as an athlete, to avoid quitting. <laughs> so where does discipline come from for you? You know, discipline to me is just, it's just mental toughness. And I've kind of come to realize that discipline is more important than motivation. <laughs> because a lot of times I don't have the motivation to go for a run or to work out. And people, you know, people, I think they wrongly think that it's so easy for me to get out the door and I'm you know, perpetually motivated to go run. And that's not always the case. So discipline is sometimes just having the sheer willpower, you know, to lace up your shoes, put on your watch and get out the door. And to me, that's a more important skill, I think, than motivation, because motivation, you know, it ebbs and flows, but discipline is a constant. Yeah. And like willpower is an arguable, like word or topic. And you said, put on the shoes and get out the door. And it sounds like it's just the starting point is what gets you out the door. Like if I put on my shoes, I know I'm getting out the door instead of sitting there saying I should just go for a run now. Yeah. Again, it's just kind of blocking and tackling, right? It's, it's the actual act of getting up off the couch, you know, walking into your closet, putting one sock on, putting the other sock on, tying up your shoes. And if you can just get yourself out the door, usually it perpetuates itself. You know, I, I can't think of a single time where I felt worse after a run than before a run. So, you, you know, we all know that if we go and, and do this run, we're going to feel better. But it's just a matter of, you know, do we have the discipline to go do it? Absolutely. I like to say, you know, motivation follows action, effort follows energy. And most of the time when you're doing something that's challenging, you don't want to do it in the moment. And like you said, you're always thankful after you did it, but you have to continuously show up and overcome that activation energy to get out the door. And that's the door is the hardest part to walk through. It, indeed it is. But, you know, you, it sounds like you've experienced a similar phenomena where if you can just get out that door and get down the road, um, you keep going. Yeah, I mean, and I think probably a lot of people listening to this are probably nodding their head like, yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a human condition. But what were your keystone actions for writing? Because for running, you know, you, you put on your shoes and you walk out the door. But writing is a little bit more, I don't know, it's not as like action oriented, like actually moving your body running. You know, writing, it's an interesting craft because it's, there is a lot of discipline that goes into it, but there also has got to be creativity. You know, writing, you can't just execute on sentences because your writing is very flat if you do that. So, you know, how do you become creative while also being disciplined? And I think that's the fine balance that a writer must strike. You know, a lot of people can write a business report. And it's very dry and it's, it's very well done and expresses everything. But it's, let's face it, it's boring. <laughs> so, you know, my, my challenge is how do you make something interesting? How do you make it propulsive? You know, how do you keep the storyline and the narrative going where people want to turn the page? And that's always something I'm thinking about when I'm writing. Yeah, it seems like emotion and vulnerability are things that are needed so that, you, as you said, people can see themselves in you. And something in your most recent book, I forget the guy's name, maybe it was Marcus or it was someone who you were talking to and they had to have a moment of vulnerability. And it was like, men aren't vulnerable. And like, it, it was something to that effect in the book. Do you, do you know what I'm talking Carl. about? Yeah, Carl. Carl. Sorry. You remember? Yeah, his name is Carl. <laughs> yeah. And it was very endearing. I mean, he said something to me that just a man wouldn't normally say to another man. It kind of showed his weakness. You know, he said, I'm kind of, I'm getting fat. Look at this. You know, he grabbed it, he grabbed a, <laughs> a handful of skin around his midsection. And, you know, I, I thought, wow, that's, 
most men would never do that. But, you know, he said, I got to stop drinking so much beer. I, I can't, you know, he's like, that's my one weakness. I come home from these runs. I just, I have a few beers and it's, you know, I can't do that as I get older. And to me, that was kind of eye-opening because, you know, most men are, we're kind of macho around each other, right? We kind of, you know, puff up our chests and, and kind of keep things close to the chest. And he just let it all out. And do you do that? Like, are, are you vulnerable around other men or are you more like puffed up? You know, I'm a, I'm a little more guarded, I guess. I'm an introvert, a strong introvert by nature. And, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm I guess, reserved and fearful about exposing who I really am because I don't know, maybe I'm just quirky. But, you know, <laughs> sometimes I feel like uh, I don't fit in, in a lot of places. And if I kind of express who I really am, I'm really not going to fit in. So I kind of just try to, to blend in. It doesn't always work out. But um, with some people in certain circumstances, I can, you know, let my hair down, if you will. And I certainly feel a lot more natural in those situations. So you just said you're fearful about exposing who you are, but you write memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's, you know, when do I do my writing? I mean, you have to think about this. Writing is a very solo pursuit. So I'm, I'm by myself. I'm on my own. And that's when I can tell my story. I mean, that's when I open up because I, I guess maybe I'm afraid to be vulnerable and maybe I'm a little too self-conscious of you know, myself and, and how I appear to others. So when I write, I'm, I'm by myself. I'm in front of a screen and I can let it all out. And do you find that once you know, people read these books and they get to know Dean a little bit better, you feel more comfortable continuing to be vulnerable? Like, is there strength in that vulnerability? There, there is a certain amount of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to say that I'm always vulnerable because there are moments where I'm, you know, I'm howling at the moon and my chest is puffed out and I'm, <laughs> I'm being ferocious. But even in those moments, I, I still think that I'm more of a lover than a fighter. And, you know, having other it's funny because I do care about what others think of me and I do care about my reputation because so many people you know, have written to me about how I've inspired them and how I've changed their life. And I think I have a certain responsibility to these people to be the man that I am, if you will. I mean, if in my books, you see who I am, you, you know, there's no, there's no hidden skeletons in the closet. There's no, you know, different Dean. I mean, you see reality in my books. And so I, I guess I'm very much exposed. And, you know, to do that takes some courage, I guess. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you were talking about the theme of your latest book, aging and you taking on the, you know, the Western states, which is the most famous ultra running race <laughs> and how ultra running has even changed a little bit. How have you been tackling that idea of getting older and having different, maybe having different expectations? You know, just kind of shifting my paradigm, you know, before it was, uh, you know, trying to end up on the podium. And, you know, now if I end up on the podium for my age group, <laughs> it's a good thing. And it, that usually happens. But you, no one really cares about, you know, who's winning your age group category, except people in your age group. Uh, so I've kind of now shifted, you know, how I run into being relentless, you know, of just continuing to pursue what I love as I age. And hopefully I'll be running, you know, marathons and ultra marathons into my 60s, 70s and 80s. And that is my goal is just to keep being me, keep doing what I love, even though, you know, I'm, I'm slower now. And how do you come to terms with that, though? Like, because, you know, there's a lot of people listening who maybe they have the ability to go fast, but maybe they're at a point in their lives where they just don't have the time to train like they could when they're in their 20s or you know, they have this expectation that they should be as fast as they used to be, but they just physically aren't able to or just can't put in the work. And it's really humbling to come to terms with that. So how did you do that? I guess I'm good at being humble. <laughs> you know, I think that um, it's just it's just reality. And it does hurt. I mean, you'd, you'd be amazed if you were to shadow me at some of these races, the kind of antics that I see happening. <laughs> you know, I mean, even like running a half marathon, people will see me as I pass them and they'll like, oh, there's that guy. I'm not going to let him pass me. And they'll race with me. You know, even though I'm running like a casual half marathon in the, you know, like the wine country half marathon, <laughs> drinking wine at the aid station, people get really competitive when they, when they see me sometimes. And, 
I kind of now just laugh at it more than anything else. Yeah, I love that. Drinking wine at the aid station and you've drinking pina coladas annoyingly at aid stations. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's all about having fun. And whenever you're doing these like really long distances, I know for me in 100 mile mountain bike racing, you kind of I compartmentalize it by aid station. If you know if you're if there are aid stations, how do you compartmentalize time or distance in an ultra race? You know, when it gets really tough, I don't compartmentalize anything. In fact, I don't think about anything. I think the more you think, the worse you are off. I think that if you can just be in the moment, be in the here and now, and just put one foot in front of the other to the best of your ability. So don't think about when the next aid station is coming up. You know, don't think about how many more miles you've got to go until you get to the finish line. Just be your best in the moment. And that's what I do when things get really tough. But I'll tell you something, I've, you know, I've done a few hundred mile um, bike races as well, mountain bike races. And it's a little bit different because <laughs> you got to you got to tune in, especially on the downhills. You know, at three in the morning when you're running on a, on a single track trail, you can kind of let your mind wander and, you know, just don't kick a rock or you know, get your foot stuck under a root or something. But when you're going down a hill, you know, at 30 or 40 miles an hour <laughs> on a mountain bike, <laughs> you, you got to really be present. At least that was my experience when I've done a couple of these um, 100-mile runs, uh, 24-hour rides, actually, I should say. I don't know. I've started trail running, and I had one of my worst, quote, crashes or falls just running down an easy trail. I tripped and fell on a rock. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) So how do you do that? You said you have to be in the moment and just put one foot in front of the other, and it sounds really good. But for most people, they're not able to do that without, you know, front-loading that practice. Do you have a a practice that you do that enables you to be in the moment? You know, I just look at my footfalls. So I just look at, literally, I look at the ground and I say, put your next foot there, put your next foot there, put your next foot there. And it's almost like a Zen-like trance you get into. But that's that's exactly what I do. I just look at my foot turnover and I don't chant a mantra. I don't do anything. I just look at my foot turnover. And so you're watching your foot turnover is the anchor. So if your mind starts to wander, you come back to your feet. Back to your feet. Yep. Yeah. And, it, you know, it ta- I have to admit, it does take discipline. We're back to discipline again. It takes discipline not to let your mind wander. I mean, your mind will wander. And what you do in those circumstances, you just bring it back to your feet. So it's, it does take some self-discipline. But I've done it for long enough, you know, that I, I know exactly what it feels like when you're in that kind of, you know, I, I think the word flow is a little overused, but when you're in that flow state, so I'm able to pull my mind back into, you know, into the present when it starts to wander. So I want to kind of go back in time a little bit and talk about some of your earlier running adventures. You've raced in some pretty extreme places. You've raced on all seven continents twice, I believe. What, like, what are your tips for dealing with the extremes, like in the South Pole, in the Sahara Desert, at Badwater, like, you know, cold swings, extreme heat. How do you deal with that? Well, you prepare. I mean, you know, one, your your apparel and your gear really matters when it's, you know, minus 45 degrees. <laughs> so you make sure you have the right gear. And you also train for the, the terrain itself. So running a, like a marathon to the South Pole, um, it was really deep snow drifts I was running in. But I live in, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's we don't it never snows here rarely snows here. So I'd go out to the beach and run in the soft sand to condition my legs for the a similar sort of terrain. And, you know, when I race across deserts, like, you know, the, the Badwater Ultra Marathon across Death Valley or the Atacama Crossing across the, the Atacama in South America, uh, I would go into a, a sauna and do sets of um, push-ups and pull-ups and burpees in a sauna to heat acclimate. So those are the kind of things I would do in preparation. Some of these races are pretty intense, and you, you know you you really need to do those sort of things just to survive. What do you do when it goes wrong? <laughs> you deal. <laughs> you do the best you can. I mean, I, I've had a lot of things go wrong, and you you know you get good at um, kind of adapting on the fly and making the best of the situation. But um, you know, if things go right, that's you know, an exception. Most often things will go wrong. So you have the expectation that there will be something to come up 
and you've prepared as best you can. And when it comes up, you'll be able to address it. Yeah, you know, exactly. I think, again, a lot of it is done kind of on the fly. But, you know, it's in now, even when I go into uh, any sort of race, you know, I, I just know that it's at a point you're going to it's going to hurt. Like rarely do you have a race that goes perfectly. Even in the races I've won, I've always looked back and said, well, I could have done that a little bit better. So I now just stand at the starting line and say, OK, there's going to be a point where it really sucks. <laughs> and I know that's going to happen. And what matters is how you deal with it. So, you know, to me, taking some of the anxiety, the, you know, the race anxiety away just has to do with your commitment that, you know, today I'm going to be the best dean that dean can be. I'm going to leave it all on the course. Like, I'm going to do my very best. And at the end of the race, if I did well, that's great. If not, that, that it is what it is. But I'm just going to try my hardest. And I'm only disappointed if I don't try my hardest. OK, so your goal whenever you get to the start line is to do your best. That's it. You can't, you can't control so much, right? You can't control the competition. You can't control the weather. You can't control the course. I mean, all you can control is how well you do. And if you have the commitment that, uh, look, I'm leaving nothing on the course today. It's, it's, I'm going to finish and it's, I'm going to be spent, completely spent when I get to that finish line. Then you've done your best. And how do you reckon with the fact that our best on one day might be different than our best on another day? that's a tough reckoning but um you know again it the more you race the more you realize that it's inevitable you know especially as you get older your performances vary so radically that you learn that it's that's kind of the new norm you know before i used to be able to you know i could click off a three-hour marathon with you know just with a fair amount of training i mean now if i want to run a sub three-hour marathon it's going to take a lot of training and a lot of speed work and a lot of you know effort to do that. So it's just a, it's just reality. So you've done some really long distance races. You're the ultra marathon man. You've run 350 miles straight. What makes you want to do that? I think it's curiosity for me more than anything else to see how far the human body can go and how far the human spirit can go. So I, I write about this a bit in the book. You know, to me, racing is always about the experience. There's only been one race that I've ever said, I, I really want to win this race. Like my whole intention of entering this race is to try to win. But other than that, every race I enter has just kind of been an experience. And I've been in it for, you know, th- just the, the fun of it, I guess, and the curiosity and the joy of it. So, you know, to me, it doesn't matter the distance of the race. I just want to have a, a great learning experience. And I think that's why I, I keep trying these kind of extreme races in really extreme conditions. Yeah, and it kind of sounds like that comes back to purpose. Yeah, I mean, to me, I'm, I'm not on earth to win races. And I think that um, some people are, and that's how they're hardwired. I'm hardwired a little bit differently. And so be it. What was the race, it, the one race that you said, I'm going to win, I got to win this race? Um, it's a race called the Badwater Ultra Marathon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, 135 miles across Death Valley. Yeah, in the middle of summer. And why did you want to win that race? Because I thought I could. And the year before I came in, in second place, I was runner up. I never took it seriously. Like, you know, in, in hindsight, the, the person that won, who's a good friend of mine, I mean, and I'm going to call her she because it was a she which to me is really great that um, Pam Reed won the race because I love when women run, win ultra marathons and they do frequently. But she won, but she was really strategic about it. I mean, she really, her crew and everything they did was to win the race. And there was a point where they came back and they were kind of, they were spying on me like if I was, cause I was catching her and it, and it kind of dawned on me like, huh, you can be really serious about this sort of race. <laughs> Because to me, the Badwater Ultra Marathon, you know, was just such a wild idea to run 135 miles nonstop across Death Valley. And I'd always been, you know, I think that was the third or fourth time I'd done it. I'd always been in it for the, the sheer adventure. I mean, I didn't have much. I had like a skeleton crew compared to, to Pam. So that next year, I'm like, well, I see there's a different way to do this race. I'm going to try it this different way. And I'm going to go for the win. And I won. Going for the win. Did that change your experience? It was a different experience, that's for sure. Yeah. It was a little less joyless, I have to admit. It was a little more like just executing on a plan. So you didn't enjoy it as much? 
I would say I didn't enjoy it as much. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was great to win the race. You know, I mean, the thrill of victory is, is a thrill, but you know, in, in hindsight, it wasn't my favorite experience of all the Badwater ultra marathons I've done. Was that the first really big, like, was that the longest race you had done to that date or had you done something longer before that? I think that was maybe the third or fourth time I'd done the Badwater ultra marathon. So it wasn't even the first time I'd, I'd done the Badwater and I know I'd run a 200 mile race before that. So I, you know, I ran the first year I ran the Western States 100 mile endurance run was 1994. <laughs> and it was such a incredible expansive experience to me because I, I couldn't even imagine when someone told me about this hundred mile foot race that a human was capable of doing it. I thought, you know, where, where are the campgrounds or the hotels along the way? There's <laughs> gotta be trickery. I mean, a human can't run a hundred miles nonstop. And after I did it, I thought, wow, I wonder if I could go further than that. So I, I heard about the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which was 135 miles. So I signed up for that and completed the Badwater Ultra Marathon. And I was looking to go further than that, but I couldn't find a race that was further than 135 miles. But I heard about this 200 mile, 12 person relay race. And I convinced the race director that, to, to let me do it just as a team of one, <laughs> as a solo racer instead of a 12 person team. So, so then I ran 200 miles. So before I won that Badwater Ultra Marathon, I'd, I'd run a 200 mile relay race by myself, I think on a couple occasions. I think it's just incredible whenever you do a feat of endurance, how once you do it, you just realize that you're capable of even more. And then you just want to keep exploring more. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's funny because I'm so close to it. I'm just talking about running, you know, 100 miles as if it's just, you know, walking to get the mail in the morning or something. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are thinking, you know, this is insane. What, what these people are talking about is crazy. And it, and it really is. But, you know, once you're kind of in that world, uh, you lose sight of it, of how, you know, wild what we do really is. Yeah, especially because most people listening are primarily cyclists and they're like, whoa, running. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, have you ever thought about doing the Ram? I have. I'm not a big fan of road riding. I'm more interested in like single track adventures. Like there's also the the tour divide where there is a bit of trail, but it's like riding across the country from Canada to Mexico. But just feats of, of ultra endurance are fascinating because as you've said before, motion stirs emotion. And you've mentioned in your book multiple times, like this is what makes you feel most alive, but it also kills you a little bit in the process and you need to break down in order to come alive. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I think you said it eloquently. I think, um, you know, during a, an ultra marathon or during an ultra cycling event, like you're describing, it definitely wrecks your body, but <laughs> it brings your spirit alive, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, you're, you're killing yourself a little bit, but you're really living. And I think that's kind of why we do it, right? Where it's, it's so out of the ordinary and it, it's so spectacular that it, it just adds another element of life that very few people will ever experience. Something that I think is really fascinating about you is that you've done so many different events around the world, all different distances, but you still want to find out what else there is, like what else is in me and how can I take on new challenges? Like whenever you decided to do the Western States again, many years later, which you talked about in your book, like how do you how do you keep that motivation and that search for more instead of just saying, yeah, OK, I, you know, I, I know I can do all these things. I've had enough. You know, I think it's the, the love of the journey. <laughs> and I think, you know, even at the, the Western states that I describe in the book, you know, going back and, and doing it after, you know, a decade period where I, I hadn't run the race, I think it was, it was almost, it wasn't, a, it was, I guess it was, it was kind of anticlimactic to, to cross the finish line because it was that 27 hour journey that was just so enlivening. And, you know, reaching the finish line, it was over. And so, you know, you, my mind just turned to what's next. You know, what else do you do and what other kind of um, challenge can you take on? I wrote down a quote from the book to kind of ask you about. And the quote is, I was particularly susceptible to post-race bouts of self-doubt and feelings of inadequacy. Nothing I did was enough ever. So, like, how do you reckon with that self-doubt and those feelings of inadequacy? Because ultra running or not, everybody feels that way about something. Yeah, it's um to me it's you you get up and you you try something else. I guess it's a bit of fearlessness, a little bit of bravery and boldness, but 
you know, when we have these these thoughts that you know we're never good enough, or you know we're not going to live up to expectations, those are kind of haunting. And a lot of that, you know, it has to do with how you're raised, and you know what you take away from the things you do in life. And let's be honest, a lot of the most successful people we know have big inferiority complexes. I mean, that's really what drives them. And you know, we hear about fathers that are abusive alcoholics, and you know, they're their son or their daughter is a, is a high achiever. And a lot of motivation comes from these feelings of inadequacy. So I've learned now to accept that, that even though I feel these ways, and the, these are not positive feelings, and they're hurtful feelings, but I look at it as though, you know, they're motivators, they're, they're things that drive me to do the things I do, and to accept that. Does that, does that kind of address your question? Yeah. And do you think the feelings of inadequacy and being humble go hand in hand? To me, they do. But I'm, I'm trying to I'm looking outside of myself and thinking of other individuals. I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, we could <laughs> we could psychoanalyze this to death. Right. I mean, look at someone like our, our former president, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> there, were, there was no humility there at all. But I think there was a big inferiority complex that you know led the man to be the line that he is. So I, I don't know if they always go hand in hand, but I think for certain people they do. Okay, I, I think that's a, a really great point that I wasn't thinking of whenever I was asking that question. Now let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the 50-50-50, which I'm sure you've talked about hundreds, maybe thousands of times. But so can you tell people what that is? Yeah, so... The genesis of what I'm going to describe is that I was at the Boston Marathon and I was at the pre-race expo, you know, where you go to pick up your racer bib and they have speakers. And I went to watch a speaker that he said he was, you know, the title of the speech was I joined the 50, the 50 state club. And I thought, what is the 50 state club? Well, he went on to describe that he'd run a marathon in every state of the union. And I didn't even know there were marathons in all 50 states. And at the end of the talk, I asked him how long it took him to achieve that goal. And he said it was eight and a half years. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I'm not sure I'll be alive in eight and a half years. But I wonder if I could do it in 50 days. So I decided to attempt 50 marathons in all the 50 U.S. states in 50 days. And that was the 50-50-50. Something that I loved about that was you said that you stopped along the way to talk to kids about health and exercise. Oh, I stopped at a school in almost every state. And we also invited kids to come out and run the last mile with me. So there was probably 10,000 kids that I ran with over the, the course of 50 days. It was fantastic. And how do you I still get letters. I still get letters today from kids. And this is over this is over 10 years ago. I still get letters from and emails now and, and comments on social media from kids that were like, oh, yeah, I was I, you know, I ran with you in Dallas or I ran with you you know, in, uh, in Boulder, wherever it might be. And I, I love that. It's so impactful and just adds an extra layer of meaning to everything that you're doing. And I think that's a big challenge for people is they don't know how to talk to kids about these things. So how do you talk to kids about health and exercise? I always say, you know, if you build it, they will run. <laughs> kids naturally love to run. They love to chase each other. It's play. So if you can design their exercise around play, kids will naturally gravitate toward it. And so that's what I always say is let, let's make it fun. Let's make it inclusive. Let's make it play. And let's have a good time. Let's celebrate it and just really have fun. And that just brings kids in. I, I think I'm just basically a big kid because <laughs> I have as much fun as they do. Yeah, it was so funny. I was out riding. It was a couple years ago now, but somebody actually said to me on my mountain bike ride, like, yeah, nice cardio. And it didn't even occur to me that that would be considered cardio to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. They're, uh, they're trying to quantify a workout and you're just out having a great ride. <laughs> and I just think that there's such a challenge in, you know, in North America, especially around kids and exercise, because if their parents aren't exercising and, and most people don't exercise, they might not actually be exposed to it. And it seems like in some cases, if the kids start it, then the parents actually will eventually join in. But how do we like what is your opinion on how we can solve this epidemic of lack of activity? Well, I mean, I, I get a lot of parents ask me, you know, you know, Johnny doesn't exercise and, and Johnny doesn't eat well. And what can I do? And, you know, I have to 
ask them the hard question, well, um, do you exercise and do you eat well? <laughs> because kids are going to model after their parents. And, you know, kids are really quick to spot hypocrisy. So you can't say eat well and exercise if you're not doing these things yourself. So a lot of times I think it's going to come down to the parent taking accountability for their own health. And I think every parent owes it to their kid. I mean, I, I don't know many parents that don't love their kids and wouldn't, you know, do anything for their kids. And to me, that making the hard decisions to to exercise and to eat well. And I think that would really change things. You know, we're facing a with, with the pandemic, it's become incredibly more difficult because kids are not they can't play they can't go out and that's where it's really um, incumbent upon the parent to be a good leader and to take the kids out on their own and to you know just explore and have fun with their kids but also you know get their heart rate up yeah and leading by example is something that sounds like you really did for your kids like you mentioned in your book that your son started training for a marathon when he was 13 he, yeah, he did. And, you know, my daughter, she ran, uh, I, I ran a 10K with my daughter on her 10th birthday. So both my kids. And then I ran a marathon with my son on his 14th birthday. Did they feel any pressure? Like, oh, I gotta, I gotta live up to dad. You know, I don't think they did. And I, I still don't think they do. I think that I never, I never pushed running on them because I was always afraid of the, the parental backlash. <laughs> I always just tried to lead by example. I mean, I think they saw my passion and my enjoyment of, of running. And they both naturally just love to run. They're not big on competition. And they don't have any stigma or hangups around running. So to me, it's worked out pretty well. You'd have to interview them though, <laughs> to get the real story. <laughs> That's true. Behind the scenes with uh, yeah. Nicholas and what was your daughter's name? Uh, Alexandria. Alexandria. That's right. Yeah. You can control your own actions, but you can't really control your children's actions. And I have a one-year-old, so I've been thinking a lot about what does parenting mean to me? What you know? How am I going to parent? And everybody wants their kids to you know have discipline and work hard and and you know, reach their potential, but. Did you ever have any bumps in the road where you noticed that your kids weren't being disciplined or noticed that they were were being lazy or just not trying to work towards something? Did you ever notice that? You know, it's funny, more with my son than my daughter. She's always been pretty driven and self-disciplined, but my son can be lazy. And, you know, he, he played football in high school and he loves to watch football. So sometimes he can just sit around all day on the couch and watch football. And I kind of jab at him like, Nick, are you going to run today? Are you going to get off the couch? And it, it, no matter what I say, it doesn't work. You know, he's just got to do it on his own. So I think it instead of saying anything, if he just sees me going out the door every day and, and, and running, I think that that you know, rubs off on him more than me saying, hey, Nick, come on, exercise a bit. You've been sitting on that couch all day. Yeah. leading Again, leading by example. And going back to just people not exercising, not taking responsibility for their health. Personally, I think that comes down to people being afraid of hard work. Like, this is something I've written about a lot. Like, people say, oh, I do that. But gosh, that sounds like a lot of work. Like, doing the work is a bad thing when doing the work is actually an amazing thing because that's what makes life worth living. So, like, how do you think we can inspire change in the world to make people fall in love with the commitment and the hard work? And even I, I say this lightly, but with pain, like not bad pain, but the pain of getting better. <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, someone someone once asked me, you know, doesn't running hurt? And I said, it, it does if you're doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think uh, yeah, it's so funny when people say, well, isn't that isn't that hard? you know, doesn't that hurt? And you say, yeah, it is hard and it does hurt. And that's why I love it. So I think that, you know, shifting your paradigm on those things makes all the difference, you know, embracing the pain and embracing the hard work and the struggle versus, you know, trying to avoid these things. And, you know, how do you get people to shift their point of view on this? I think you lead by example. Um, you know, if you can ask one person to go riding with you, that's not a rider. A lot of times I've seen with running, Sometimes it's just taking someone on a run one time and it sucks and they hate it, but they become a runner, you know, in five years from then they're running marathons. So I think it's, you know, it's kind of incumbent upon us because, you know, we're out doing it to be inclusive and ask others to come join us. 
And I think that, you know, it, it, it takes a village, right? I think, you know, people like you, with all that you're doing on both on social media and your podcast and through athletics, you've influenced countless people and they've influenced countless people. So it builds on itself. And I think that, you know, the, the more we can amplify your voice, the better off everyone's going to be. Thanks. Yeah, it comes down to that ripple effect. Like you said, with your first book, if only a couple people read this, then I've done my work. It, it matters. And you never know who those people are going to influence. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and they, they inevitably do. I mean, you know, run, runners are very um, vocal people, <laughs> you know, and I mean, you know, we, we slap stickers on our cars that say 26.2, you know, and this and that. And some people roll their eyes at it. But, you know, we're, we're very proud of what we do and we're very passionate about it. Yeah. And man, like, I think you actually said this, but there's something that is really special about endurance sports. Like you could be a CEO of a company, but be more proud that you finished a marathon than being a CEO of a company. No, I, I've seen that firsthand. I mean, it, it becomes your identity, right? It becomes kind of who you are and it's the most important driver in your life. You know, running a marathon and or running, you know, being an Ironman or whatever your, your endurance sport pursuit is, uh, it just becomes it becomes you as a person, and it's it's something you you know hold dear to you, more dear than most most anything else in your life. I was actually trying to do psych research in psychology to un try to understand what it is about endurance sports that is so sticky and so like grabbing for defining who you are. Why do you think? that it's an endurance sport over another accomplishment? I think because we ultimately proved to ourselves we're, we're better than we thought we were and we can go further than we thought we could. I think endurance sports are very quantifiable. So, you know, you may think it's impossible to run a marathon. And I tell people that's why you need to go run a marathon. <laughs> and when you finish the marathon, you prove to yourself that nothing's impossible. And I think that that's the power in what we're doing. How do you deal with wanting to quit? Because there's always going to be feelings of wanting to quit. I've said that I've been winning races and still in the back of my mind, I'm like, ah, oh, it would just be so awesome like to not have to do this right now. <laughs> so <laughs> like, how do you deal with that feeling of wanting to quit? <laughs> no, I, I agree. I mean, I've done races where it's just, it so sucked. I just, I'm like, will a car just hit me? Please, just someone yeah. run me over. Can I just so fall I off the cliff? Doing, <laughs> so I don't have to be doing this anymore. But I think that those are the most rewarding races ever, because if you can somehow grunt it out, you know, you, you so proved yourself that you can get through anything. And I, you know, and part of me now when, when I'm at that moment where like, this is just so miserable, I don't, I just want to crawl under a rock and die. You know, getting through that kind of low point is, is so rewarding. Yeah. So knowing that you're going to get through it, because I think a lot of people, especially when they're first starting a big challenge, whether it be, you know, going for a one mile run or going for a hundred mile run. There are those moments of wanting to quit. And if you've never pushed through it and knowing that that moment isn't going to last forever, then it's hard to know what's going to be on the other side. Yeah. And that's why to our discussion previously, that's why you learn so much about yourself when you do these things. Yeah. So what's next for you? <laughs> wow. I've got, I've got so many things I want to still do. So you know, I had run 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days, as we discussed, and I was planning to run a marathon in every country of the world in a one-year time span. So kind of that same sort of adventure, but going global with it. And there's 198 countries in the world. So I was working with the U.S. Department of State and the, um, the U.N. to get passports and permits into all of those countries. And things got very derailed with the pandemic, but hopefully you know, I'll still be able to accomplish this at some point. So that's the goal of mine is to run a marathon in every country of the world in one year. And how do you, how would you like plan the route? Well, when I ran the 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days, you know, I knew the logistics were beyond me. So I worked with the agency that coordinated the Olympic torch run across the U.S., you know, and they're, they're logistics experts and they plan the route. So I'd work with them again on the routing. And we've already kind of mapped out how were we going to do it? And it was just a matter of, you know, kind of checking the boxes. And of course, being able to run 198 marathons in 365 days, but we had the route, everything was kind of in place to go. But then um, with COVID, it just got, you know, annihilated those plans. Yeah, a lot of people's dreams were annihilated by COVID. 
What did you, did you have any practices or things or realizations during this time to help you deal with that? You know, I'm used to suffering and, you know, I'll be honest, I'm an introvert as we discussed. So I love nothing more than just being by myself. I'm very comfortable being by myself. And, you know, to me, I have a, a very deep relationship with nature. Like I spend a lot of time in nature and a lot of people don't. I mean, most people live most of their, their lives indoors where I, I live most of my life's outdoors. <laughs> but it was profound how much I missed being around people. You know, I was on the road sometimes 250 days a year and mostly surrounded by other runners. So I'd go and do book signings or appearances or go to races. And sometimes it was exhausting. And I used to think, wow, this is so tiring, like being around people constantly and having to be on and talking. And I thought, you know, one day maybe I'll retire and just kind of, you know, move on to an island by myself or something. But now I realized how much I really love being around other people, even though I'm an introvert. I really miss that connection. And it's been challenging, I have to say, for me, as, uh, you know, as well as many, many other people. Yeah, it must be very weird to be at home. Like I know for me as well, like I, I'm used to traveling and being gone all the time. And my husband and I are like, wow, we've actually never been home for this long. <laughs> I mean, there hasn't been a period in my entire life where I've been this homebound and not even close. So where's the first place you want to go? Well, I'm supposed to go to Greece in June. So I hope that happens. It's the 200-year anniversary of modern Greek independence. So I'm supposed to run 10 marathons in 10 days across these places in Greece where some of the battles took place. So that'll be the, hopefully the first trip I can make is to Greece. And then in July, I'm supposed to run across Australia. <laughs> so those are the first two starting places. And not bad places to start, eh? No, not at all. And you are Greek, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm Greek, yeah. Like, what's your weekly mileage like? Uh, right now, it's it's nothing. I mean, it's 50 miles to, I think I had a like 120-mile week a couple weeks back just because I was bored. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's not like it used to be. Well, I'm sure people listening are wondering, like, how does he train to do all these things? Well, you know, one thing I we really never talked about is I loved a mountain bike. And we talked about some of the races I've done, these 24-hour races. I've done a number of centuries and double centuries. But I've recently started riding something called an Elliptigo, which is a, a stand-up bike. And they came out with a mountain bike version. So I've been doing oh, cool. uh, a lot of rides on my... Yeah, it's 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 an awesome piece of technology. So it's, it's engineered for standing up. And I've been riding it um, all over on some pretty technical trails as well. Wow. And then you, you can also maintain your coordination for running, right? Yeah, it's great cardio, but with zero impact. I mean, I think, and it, you know, we, you know the benefits of mountain biking. I mean, it's great cross-training. My next question is, when are you going to come up to British Columbia and go for a run and a ride with me? <laughs> oh, I miss BC. It's been too long. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to come up. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of getting in, like, I ran a marathon when I was... I was 17 or 18. I started training when I was 17 for it. And then I found cycling. But through the years, I just still love running and think about running. So during the pandemic, uh, an activity I've picked back up is running again. And there's some really interesting trail races in BC that I would love to check off my list. There's some great races in BC. Yeah. So how many miles are you running a week? Uh, not that many. I'm, how many kilometers? I'm running, <laughs> well, I'm running 20 miles a week, which... <laughs> I keep getting injured. Like I have a coach and my body is just so, I've been a cyclist for 17 years. So my body is just so wanting to be a cyclist body. And it's, it's all these little things that are just part of the adaptation. They're not like crazy injuries. It's just like, you know, a niggle here, a niggle there, and then having to get through it and then build back up again. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to continue building back up. But yeah, I'm, I'm at 20 miles a week. So when you say, oh, only 50 miles a week, I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but you're probably riding a lot as well. Yeah, I'm still mountain biking. A lot of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, this has been amazing to get to talk to you. And I'm so thankful that we had the time to do this and that I got a sneak peek at your book. Where can people find you and where can people find all your books? Oh, I, I, you know, nowadays you can just Google my name. <laughs> Someone said I'm the first search that comes up if you type in Dean. So just oh. type in Dean <laughs> and you can find me or my books or my website or our social media or wherever. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, I hope that you get to go to Greece and Australia in the very near future and that I see you on the trail somewhere. And BC. And BC, yeah. When you and come up BC, and run yeah. in Squamish with me <laughs> and hopefully I, I don't fall off a cliff on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you up on that. It'll be fun. <laughs> Thanks. We'll do our next podcast side by side running. All right. Well, I know that people have interviewed you while they were running and they ended up like running a whole marathon. I forget who it was. It was somebody. <laughs> that I listened to recently and they, yeah, they were interviewing you and then they ended up running an entire marathon with you while they were interviewing you. That can happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you are enjoying the show and want to get a weekly notification of all of these amazing guests who have been coming on. As always, appreciate you sharing on social media. It is so fun to see you connecting with these guests and with these topics. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. 